to another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to both Carl Hendrick and Robin McPherson. Robin is a history teacher and currently an assistant rector at Dollar Academy in Scotland. And Carl is an English teacher completing a PhD at King's College in English Education and is also Head of Learning and Research at Wellington College. They've both worked on the Telegraph Festival of Education and speak regularly at education conferences such as Research Ed. Now, the reason I wanted to get both Carl and Robin on the show is that firstly, we have an inclusive policy here at the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast. Both mathematicians and non-mathematicians are more than welcome. And secondly, because they are the co-authors of what is probably my favourite book of 2017. What does this look like in the classroom? I reckon it's the most successful attempt to bridge the gap between research and practice, and the lineup of contributors is quite frankly ridiculous. Are you ready for this? We have fellow podcast guests Dylan William, Daisy Christodoulou, Doug Lemov, Tom Bennett, and Nick Rose, together with the likes of Lucy Crean, Martin Robinson, David Didow, and more. It's like the Ocean's Eleven of education books, only there's 18 of them. I just love the way the book's written, with contributors responding to pertinent questions posed by teachers, such as, I want to improve my questioning style, what three bits of advice would you give me? And what is the best way to deal with low-level disruption? So, throughout this interview, I try to dig into the key takeaways from the book, and much more besides. So, during the math speed dating, we learn about Carl's experiences at school with maths, and I ask him what would have made things turn out differently. Carl and Robin both talk us through lessons they've taught that went badly and the lessons they learned from the experience. We ponder why there's been such a surging interest in education research recently. They then each pick out one of their favourite strategies from the book and what ensues is a fascinating discussion about marking, feedback, workload and much more. We consider how past papers can be used most effectively in the run-up to an exam. And then Carl and Robin reflect on the most important and surprising research they've seen before sharing some great blogs for us to check out. This episode is definitely one to share with your non-maths colleagues, with Carl and Robin sharing the kind of strategies that any teacher can benefit from, no matter what subject they teach. I hope the episode also provides a good overview of what I genuinely think is a superb and very important book. Well, a podcast about a book would not be complete without a plug about a book, so here it comes, as subtle as ever. My own book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths, Lessons Learned from Research, Conversations with Experts and 12 Years of Mistakes, published by John Cat Education, may well be out by the time you listen to this podcast. It is a collection of all the things I've learned over the last two years, looking back on the mistakes I've made and what I now do differently in the classroom. In her review of the book, Joe Morgan says, and I won't try and do Joe's accent here, 
Craig summarises the key points of the relevant research succinctly and his advice to teachers is perfectly pitched and instantly transferable to any maths classroom. For the sake of our current and future students, I certainly hope the book becomes essential reading for maths teachers. And Jo wasn't even under that much duress from me when she wrote it. Anyway, I really hope you find the book useful. So, without further ado, let me introduce Carl Hendrick and Robin McPherson. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, so we start as ever with the math speed dating questions. And I'm going to come to Carl first with a tricky opener, Carl. Question number one, what is your favourite number and why? So, uh, well, my favourite number is the number seven. And the, 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 the boring reason for that isn't any sort of um, mathematical reason. It's simply because Kenny Daglish was number seven at Liverpool when I was a kid. And, that's, and he's my favourite player. Nice. That's solid. No, I'll, I'll, t- I'll take that one. And how about you, Robin? What, what's your favourite number and why? Well, I'd like to point out that Kenny Dalglish is Scottish and just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go, uh, for historical reasons, I'm going to go with zero, if I'm allowed to go with zero. Yeah, definitely. Is that, okay. Um, the, the reason that I was teaching uh, Islamic history a few years ago, I came across Al-Khwarizmi, who came up with the idea of zero. And that kind of blew my mind a little bit, the idea that no one had ever thought of that as being a number. Uh, and it, it got me interested in all aspects of um, the, the Islamic empires, the early stages of history, the, uh, the science, art, architecture and maths and the amount of massive contribution they made to the world, things like astronomy as well. So uh, I ended up teaching a maths lesson, but I, I wouldn't say I'm a mathematician, obviously, but um, through the theory of knowledge course for IB. And we had a great lesson where uh, quite a number of very good mathematicians in the room and we just debated whether maths was in, invented or discovered. And use this specific example, had Al-Khwarizmi invented zero, did he discover it? Um, and uh, the kids went away and thought very hard about that and grilled their maths teachers on it. And they got, I think, a 50-50 split on the answers from the maths department as whether it was invented or discovered. So that's why I go with, with zero, because the debate rages on. Flipping heck. And what side of the debate do you fall on there, Robin? Invented or discovered? I, I've, I think I tended towards discovered, but I've never felt really comfortable with that. Because um, I've... I was originally of the opinion you can't really invent mathematics, but I think you can. I don't know what you think about it, what your listeners think of that, but um, I'm, I'm open to suggestion on that one. Fantastic. Superb. Well, back, back to you then, Carl, with question number two. What, what was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Yeah, so <laughs> as, as a, uh, an English teacher, I, was, I had, a, I had a, a sort of a problematic relationship with maths when I was uh, a student, and I really struggled to kind of see the world uh, in, in in those terms. I loved poetry and literature because I loved the, the sort of chaos of it, the ambiguity of it. Um, and I was looking at the questions you sent through and I was looking at what's your favourite topic in maths? And I, I sort of stopped doing maths as early as I could. Um, I think it was about 16, I can remember, I still remember her face, the teacher, <laughs> the bewildered look on her face uh, at the stuff that you know, my ability in maths. So I can't actually remember, uh, you know, I can't actually remember a single thing. I, I mean, it's sort of over 20 years now before I've even sort of looked at an equation. However, in the years sort of since that, I've come to 
uh, regret, really regret not um, sort of putting more effort in because it's something I've sort of grown to see mass as uh, kind of another language, if you like. And it's just it's a language that I don't have really. And it's it's definitely something that uh, I regret, particularly as I started to do uh, and look at uh, research. Um, and when I started doing a, a PhD level, I can remember doing a course in my foundation year PhD um, looking at quantitative methods and just re it really kind of was drummed home to me that I just uh, this wasn't something that was in my locker and I had to kind of work hard, really hard to get any sort of grasp on it. Um, so I think it's um, it, the answer to that question. I don't actually have an answer because there's, I, I genuinely don't. I, I can remember things like quadratic equations and stuff like that, but absolutely no uh, uh, memory of how to do them or, 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 or how I approach them. And can I ask, Carl, because it, it fascinates me this. What, like looking back now, especially from all the reading and research that you've done, what, what would it have taken to engage you as a child in mathematics? See, I remember a teacher um, in my sort of final year, he was doing, he was, he was teaching classics and he, he sort of came into the classroom. He was an old man and he held up a copy of Homer's Odyssey. And he said it was almost shaking with anticipation. <laughs> Either that or he, he had some kind of serious illness. And he, um, he said, this book will change your life. And he talked about the Odyssey and he talked about Homer in a way that you could, you, you, you could only help, you, you couldn't help but be completely arrested yes. by his passion and his enthusiasm. And I, I, you know, I was, not that I would blame the teachers, but it was, I, I never got a sense of, um, I, I was sort of told when I was in school that um, this was, the, it was put in sort of utilitarian terms that if, you know, you need this to get into university, you need, I wasn't even thinking that way. And then the other thing was the teacher that I had when, you know, well, in Ireland, it's, it was different. It was a leaving certificate. But in, in, in England, it's uh, sort of GCSE level. We had a teacher who just got us to work in groups and to um, and I just didn't have the, the kind of scheme of knowledge. I didn't know enough to be able to work independently. And so I think it, it, it was primarily that sort of lack of knowledge. But then I did have tutors and stuff, but it just didn't it didn't really um uh, yeah, I just did. I just never sort of uh, connected with the, with, with the kind of discipline of. I was also very into music when I was younger, <laughs> um, and and I I I think that might have been a way in for me too. Um, I can remember seeing a lecture at Wellington. I think when I first started here on the golden ratio, and just being absolutely arrested by the the, the elegance of it and. The, the the idea of mathematics is an extremely elegant language and once i kind of saw it in those terms uh, it changed for me fantastic no, that's that's dead interesting that carl and, and let me let me chuck it over to you then robin how about yourself what, what was your favorite topic in maths as a student uh, well i had amazing maths teachers and was actually all right at it I wouldn't say fantastic i did get uh, a credit one under the old scottish system of standard grade which is the top grade but it was a slog to get there 
uh, I do remember really enjoying algebra for some reason. Um, that was something that I just kind of got, and everything else I felt I had to work really, really hard at because it wasn't that intuitive. Um, but I think if, if anything stands out in my memory, I had a terrific math teacher called Julian Bond, who's one of these really charismatic guys. Uh, everyone really respected him. He was also very funny, though he could be very serious too. His classroom was brilliant. The thing that was displays everywhere, best displays I've ever seen of any teacher, because it was all pop culture. Um, you know, any kind of film you can imagine the time or band or anything like that. But he tweaked everything to be mathematical. So I remember always used to sit next to a, a, a picture of uh, Serge Blanc, the, the French rugby player, the international, who said that um, maths can be perfect, but rugby never. So it was just kind of this really engaging room. And this kind of trick to sort of get everyone to pay attention was to get us all to chant, so katoa. Um, so that kind of stuck with me. Um, so I just really enjoyed those lessons. And I think we started algebra with him. So I think that was probably the, the thing that I enjoyed the most. But a little bit like Carl, actually, I, I didn't you know, fall in love with maths at school, even though I had brilliant teachers. I think just because my own intellectual immaturity. And it was very much later on that I, I wished I'd stuck at maths and, and might have a crack at it again. Uh, largely because of a, a conversation with a colleague of mine in my first job who explained to me why he thought maths was a language. And that made me see it in a different way and thought, if I went back and studied it again, thinking like that, it might unlock it for me a little bit more and I could delve more into it. Um, so it's, it's something I feel like it's unfinished work. I'm observing a lot of lessons just now and seeing great teachers doing lessons on algebra, for example, looking at it and thinking, I wish I could remember how to do that. Um, <laughs> that's what I'm going to pick. <laughs> Fantastic. No, these are superb answers. And, and back to you, Carl, for the, for the final question of the speed dating. What job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education? Um, God. Uh, so one thing, uh, I, I basically started teaching in um, an inner city London state school and the, then I started working in the independent sector and started working at Wellington and one of the things that you do in the independent schools which is probably quite different is, is sport so a big part of what you do is, is the kind of the kind of school the, the, the idea of a schoolmaster who's who's doing various levels of of, of uh, uh, the, the, what students do in a day and coaching football basically if I could do any job in terms of if I had a choice I'd be a professional footballer but <laughs> I probably have enjoyed uh, coaching kids football and it, one of the things I've really learned from it is the fact that we had um, a professional coach come in a couple of years ago and he was a he played professionally and he knew the game inside out. So I was learning from him about uh, shape, about uh, technique, about how to set teams up. And I realized within about a couple of sessions of working with this guy that I knew absolutely nothing about football. I knew a lot about it as an armchair pundit, but in terms of the um, the kind of domain specific knowledge of, of football, I knew absolutely nothing about it. So it really underscored to me the idea that as, as, as a teacher, uh, I think this is why people look at teaching and they think they know how to do it or they think they, they particularly, um, it, you know, uh, parents and people outside education look at teachers and go, well, you know, because I was in school, this is how you do it. So I, I, I was sort of uh, humbled by this guy and realized that uh, sort of skills and knowledge are very much domain specific. And if you don't know um, 
for example, when you look at a game of football, um, what's happening and what's occurring, you're likely to make very superficial judgments on what's happening. And in, in a similar sense, you can go into a classroom and if you don't actually understand uh, fundamental aspects of what's happening, you can make these very um, superficial judgments. So I think if I um, if I wasn't in education, um, I probably I probably like to do some sort of uh, football development, probably. Fantastic, superb, and um, how about yourself, Robin? Uh, I had a slightly different existence for teaching in that I worked in pubs, pub management, and then as a chef in restaurants, and um, went from that into teaching rather bizarrely. So it was a bit of an odd step. I don't think I'd still be in that, to be honest. It was um, something I kind of knew that, although I enjoyed it, it was, it was hard work, it was good, honest work. But uh, because I'd, I'd done, you know, read a lot of history at university, I did feel that like I was sort of wasting that knowledge. So I think I would probably be doing something academic anyway. Um, so, I mean, I, I'd probably be involved in some sort of political activism, to be honest. I don't think I'd, I'd, I'd be a terrible member of a political party. So I'd be the guy that always falling out with leadership and you know, getting problems. <laughs> but um, no, I, I do a bit of work for an educational charity, which is about the Srebrenica genocide, and I find that satisfying work still. Uh, I'd probably be doing something like that in a, a think tank or, a, or whatever, a special interest group. Um, uh, lobbying, I guess, um, which I quite enjoyed. So it was a lot of reading, writing, talking to people. It's educational in its way. So, yeah, something along those lines. Fantastic. Super. Well, before we dig into kind of the, the meat of the show, um, I just want to get get a bit of an overview for our listeners of, of your career. So I wonder, if again, if we go back to Carl first, can you just uh, briefly describe the steps involved in, in how it all started for you, Carl, and how you got to where you are today? Why well, I left school... 18 i had no intention of of going to university i was um uh, basically i was playing music i moved out of my parents house moved into the city center of dublin started playing in bands um managed to um sort of well to put a long story short i sort of blagged my way into getting a, a record deal with um with atlantic records and we we made an album and they brought in quite a, a quite a big name producer and we sort of spent a year making an album uh gave that to the record company they thought it was rubbish and they dropped <laughs> they they dropped us and then i moved to i moved to london and i was working i was a, a stage manager in the barfly in camden and then i thought i've had enough of this i want to i had a, i sort of an idea about being a writer and i thought well I'll, I'll, I'll do a degree um, to because I, I again it goes back to that idea. I, I signed a record deal not knowing enough about music, and I thought, well, before I write, I'll try and I'll get a, a, a I'll have a good sense of, of literature and I'll read a lot of literature. So I went to Goldsmiths, did a, uh, a degree in English and American literature. Then I, I was planning on moving to America, and then I thought, oh, well. I'll, I'll sort of speculatively apply to King's College to do a PGC because I thought at the time you could get a bursary and I thought, well, if I can teach, then I can fund myself while, while being a writer. In the first term, I was put into a school in Houston, an inner city um, state school, and I started teaching English and something happened. Um, I sort of was really 
you know, in the first year, like a lot of teachers are, was just quite bad. But there were mo- there was enough moments where I felt, wow, this is there's something going on here that's that's quite powerful. And the things that you think will make you happy are often um, not which will make you happy. And the, the things that you you don't think, I never would have thought. I mean, I was you know I was a terror in schools. Uh, I was sort of I was asked to leave the school that I was in when I was about 16. So I never thought that I would sort of end up being a teacher, but I just kind of really clicked and I really enjoyed it. And I could, I had a sense of how you could get good at it because I could see that there was older teachers in the, in the school who were really, really effective at what they were doing. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, I'd love to be able to do that. I'd love to be able to, to control a class like that. I'd love to know that much about my subject and um, so I, I, and then I did a master's degree part time and started doing a, a PhD. But the teaching was, uh, you know, and then the more I got into it, then the more I sort of got under my skin. And I think, like a lot of people, you just wake up one day and you you find out that you're a teacher, and it isn't something. I think some teachers, you know, it's a career plan or they've got parents and they think I'm going to do this, but it certainly wasn't the case with me. And it was something that I, um, uh, yeah, it just sort of, it just sort of happened. Fantastic. Flip, flipping heck. It's, it's interesting. So I, I always find it fascinating when guests have, have kind of done other things before teaching and often guests speak about that moment or a series of moments. I wonder, Carl, was there anything in particular from that first year that, or any specific moment where you can remember thinking, yeah, this, this is the job for me. I think it was, uh, a lot of the stuff that I was, that I thought was good teaching or that, um, was not really very good at all. And it wasn't very effective. And I kind of remember just uh, more out of frustration than anything else, sort of going into a class with a poem and going, right, this is why this is what I genuinely think about this poem. This is what it means to me. This is this is and kind of modeling that passion and that enthusiasm. And I can just remember these, I think it was year nine or something. They just all kind of started to listen and they started to sort of um, they just had that the, the kind of that, that face you get when you're teaching a class, and you can tell that they're that you're kind of getting through to them. And yeah, it was just I don't know. And then and then I was very lucky in that I had a head of department there who was uh, she kind of was telling me that this is something that you should do, and uh, I didn't really I, I kind of I wanted to be a writer. But the, the reality of writing was something that was was it's extremely difficult thing to do, and you may it's that it's that disjunction between wanting to, to be something and the, the kind of rea- the difference between the reality of it. So um, yeah, it was just and also it, the idea of going into a classroom with kids and talking about literature, um, and and all the time I've been doing teaching, it's never felt like a job and. and I can remember thinking, just being amazed that I was getting paid to do this. Uh, so, and then I was just I was very lucky that I had people, um, senior leaders, both here and at, at Wellington, that were very sort of 
encouraging and very sort of um, supportive. Can can I just ask Carl on that? And apologies, Robin. I know I'm keeping you hanging on. I know you're desperate to to tell me about that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, just one thing for you, Carl. Um, I, I've noticed you, you've mentioned with regard to the maths that it was perhaps that the passion that that was that, that was missing when you were at school, and also then one of the kind of key moments for you, the, almost one of the turning points, is when you discovered the importance of passion. And now later on in this interview, we're going to be talking about strategies and findings from cognitive science and so on. But would you go as far as to say that unless the teacher using these strategies has that passion and can convey that passion, then all the strategies and all the science and stuff kind of goes out the window? Does does the passion have to be there and does it have to be communicated to the students? I think you need to model what the first encounter that a lot of students will have with the subject is, is through their teacher. And there, you, you need to model what a, 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 a sort of a, an enthusiasm for that subject will look like. But it comes down to knowledge for me. So the, the teachers that were um, the most uh, impactful, they just knew an awful lot of stuff. And they took that into the room and had a confidence and an authority. The knowledge isn't everything. A lot, there's been a lot of teachers I've, I've seen and, and had that knew a lot, but they, but they were terrible. And by the same token, I can remember teachers who were extremely passionate, but they weren't effective because it was very, very, very superficial. But I saw English as a sort of a, a kind of an, um, an ontology, if you like, a way of being. And it was a way of seeing the world that, that, that completely made sense to me. And it was a kind of celebration of ambiguity and randomness and a particular version of truth. And so when I was encountering teachers who were talking about questions that I had or things that were of interest to me, like confronting loss or love when you're when you're 15, 16 and you'd you read something. I can remember reading Joyce when I was 16 in, in Dublin. And had this kind of prof- kind of profound sense that this person was telling the truth, and that the teacher that was presenting to me was um, also telling the truth. Uh, it, it had a huge impact on me. So I think the, the, the passion is one element of it. But if you, there's a great paper by um, Pedro and and uh, Paul Kirshner about what makes an authentic teacher, and one of the key elements of that is. Um, for students, they view authentic teachers as, as having a very strong subject knowledge because in English, you're constantly going off on tangents and you need to be able to relate things to what students know with kind of subject-specific vocabulary. And the teachers that have got that strong knowledge and passion and are able to kind of go off on these tangents are, are I think, the most effective. Got it. Fantastic. That's superb, that Carl. Well, Robin, we've we've kept you holding on long enough now. So I wonder if could you (laughs) (laughs) You may you may have changed career by the time I get to you here, but I wonder if you could you could take us uh, briefly through the steps involved um, in getting to where you are today. Yeah, I'm in my sixteenth year of teaching and at my fourth school. So, uh, like Carl, I I had no intention of being a teacher, but I come from a family of teachers, so I was kind of genetically cursed, I suppose, to end up in the profession. But uh, as I said, I was, I mean, I, I left university with no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, and I paid my way through uni by, you know, sort of working in bars and kitchens and things. So was still doing that. And I had moved back to Edinburgh 
where I went to school and was asked because my, my old history teacher was off ill and they didn't know how long that was going to be and they were struggling to get cover. So uh, quite nepotistically, I guess they, they asked me to come back and, and just step in because it was better than any other option they had. Uh, so for, I think it ended up being six months, I had this kind of crazy existence of going in, teaching, flying by the seat of my pants, uh, relying on subject knowledge only, uh, doing nothing else to surround myself in the classroom with. Um, and then, you know, around about break time, rush off to the restaurant, get changed in the whites and, you know, do lunchtime starting <laughs> midnight. So I did that, you know, kind of seven days a week because, um, you know, the, the days off from teaching were full time in the restaurant and, you know, the days off the restaurant, I was spending more time in school. And at the end of that stint, I mean, I was absolutely knackered, but I did realise that, you know, teaching was a, something actually I, I could do and enjoy doing and never thought of before. Uh, and the school very kindly said that they would support me to do uh, training and that there would be a job for me. So that's what I did and um, stayed there for just over six years um, and then moved abroad because I wanted a, a bit of a change of scene. Uh, ended up in an international school in the UAE and that was absolutely amazing. It was my first head of department role and I loved being in an international school. Uh, I remember having a, like an IGCSE class of 20-something kids and there were like 15, 16 different nationalities in the room and we were teaching the Cold War uh, and they just had different opinions about everything we did and all the classes were tremendous. And it, it really it changed me as a teacher because I became much more interested in I think different approaches that you know, different national systems have to learning. So I'm more curious about international education, start reading up a bit about that um, and also changed me culturally. So I realised things like, you know, as a British teacher, I use sarcasm quite a lot, and that didn't translate at all into an international context. It's mostly interesting. <laughs> um, so I had stopped doing that, and also stopped, you know, using sort of like we when I was talking about the British government and talked about you know, the British government, the Scottish government, whatever. Um, so tried to distance myself a little bit from, and that was that was healthy for me as a historian as well. Um, and so I've, I've trained in IB. I've also headed up the Theory of Knowledge uh, program, and that was terrific. So. When it came time to come back to the UK, um, I was really attracted to, to teach at Wellington because I, I knew a lot about Anthony Seldon. I'd read his books when I was studying history and politics uh, as a pupil and was hearing a lot about what he was doing even when I was out in the UAE. So uh, I was always curious to work for him. I always wanted to, to know what it, it was like to work for that type of a head who was kind of on this mission to change the entire educational world. Um, so you know, I'm managed to get the job and I loved it. I mean, Anthony did so much for me in that uh, not only had the, the faith to sort of back me as a head of history and, and was very supportive in that role. Uh, you know, when I was looking to sort of develop myself, he put me in charge of professional learning and then uh, in came initial teacher training. We became a teaching school, so I got involved in that and then uh, finally got involved in the Telegraph Festival of Education. So all these things kind of kept piling up. Um, so, you know, at any time I sensed the challenge, Anthony was able to kind of throw something at me. And it was through that, you know, Carol started working at Wellington shortly after I did. So, you know, we, we got to know each other quickly, very well. Uh, you know, sort of same interests. But obviously, if it wasn't talking about football, it was talking about teaching. Um, and then uh, when we managed to get to work on the, the Telegraph Festival Education together, that was absolutely brilliant. And I guess we'll come on to it in a bit, but that's one of the main reasons I think the book came about. Um, and then just recently moved back to Scotland, um, now uh, an assistant rector or deputy head. Uh, just to be closer to family, really, but, you know, managed to uh, get myself a job at a school that I've, I've known a lot about for a long time and always wanted to work there. So um, that's going really well. Um, and just trying to learn all the time. It's amazing how when you think you've cracked something in education, you, you shift your interest and realise there's so much more to learn. 
Um, so trying to develop leadership at the moment, a bit raw in that sense, I suppose. But you, know, you, you realise as well that the skill set that got you one move becomes, you know, not not redundant, but you need to evolve and develop new skills to take on the new role. So uh, I always like trying to do something new every two or three years so I do get kind of itchy feet. So that's what pushed me forward a lot in my career. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's where I'm at now. Fantastic. Well, that, that's superb. That. Well, before just before we get to talk onto the book, uh, talk about the book, we're going to ask. I'm going to ask you my favourite question that I ask all my guests, and I'm going to come back to you, Carl, for this. And and that's. I wonder if you could pick a lesson that you've taught. It could be recent or or in the dim dark past. But I want a lesson that didn't go according to plan. And crucially, I want to know why didn't it go well, and what did you learn from the experience? Well, where do I start? Um, <laughs> I think that when I started teaching 10 years ago, there was a very, um, there was a strong sense that you had to kind of lead children towards finding things out and that it was a, it was a very bad idea to tell them stuff. Um, I can remember, uh, we had a local education, we had, you know, we had a lot of specialists come in and, and tell us how to teach and being told that. If you teach, if you're talking for longer than ten minutes, then something's gone terribly wrong. So I remember a lesson where I would be constantly planning lessons and thinking that students were going to be like Hercule Poirot, that they should <laughs> that they should kind of discover a lot of clues. And so I, I, one lesson I think I was teaching poetry, and as a uh, uh, obviously you know you had to have a starter to or or a hook, and the more Kind of, um, you know, had a, I remember all these horrible words like a snazzy starter, and it was it was something like some some kind of vague, you know, it was just absolute nonsense. Like it was a picture of the poem. No, no, it was a kind of abstract picture. And right, here's a picture. Get into groups. Five minutes. What do you think this picture is saying and the kids would be just going off of, you know and they'd get into groups and they'd kind of talk you know in very superficial terms okay now what what do you think you know how does this relate to um the course you know and they'd kind of say things they might be a picture of a flower or something and then i go right we're going to do um a poem and then it, there was a, a and the next session was they're all in groups and there was envelopes on the table with stuff cut out in the envelopes and they would then have the poem cut up and they'd have to try to order the poem in uh, what they thought the order, the lines that it should be in. So they did that for about 20 minutes and then they kind of feedback and then, you know, so on and so forth. And I, it, it was a disaster because the kids were essentially guessing. The, the basically, they were just guessing. They were just guessing at everything. Uh, and... It gave the illusion of creativity. It gave the illusion of engagement. And really, they were learning very, very little. So um, I basically learned from that, that um, and to go back to that idea about you know, passion, I would kind of take the, I just had, I would sort of take things by the scruff of the neck and I'd go into the lesson and, and I'd, I, I wanted to have very high expectations in terms of behavior and what they were going to learn. So when I kind of wrote down explicitly what I think they should have learned by the by the end of the lesson, or or rather within a specific spe- specific time frame, uh, it, it then changed. So I would go into I changed that then to um, saying here's five 
kind of non-negotiable things you need to know about this poem before you even start thinking about it, before you even start talking about it. And I would kind of explain things and, and give them vocabulary to kind of think differently, subject-specific vocabulary and otherwise. And so really what I did to change that kind of first disastrous lesson was to focus on empowering the kids with um, knowledge about the poem and a way of thinking and being critical about the poem uh, that wasn't superficial. Now, this is fascinating, this call, because this is a, a kind of debate kind of internally I'm having and also on the podcast itself. So there's a model of teaching in maths called inquiry maths and Andrew Blair, the kind of pioneer of it's been on this show. And it's the, the kind of rationale behind it is that you you kind of set the kids loose on something. But crucially, they then reach a point in their investigations or discoveries or whatever when they realize they don't have enough knowledge to proceed and they then request knowledge off you. So they essentially request to be explicitly taught or instructed by you, the teacher. And I kind of do it the other way around, like like you do. I prefer to give them that knowledge first. But the, the kind of argument that Andrew puts forward for this, and I'm just interested in your take on it, is that because the kids realize there's a purpose to um, you instructing them because they've reached the point that they can't get any further without that knowledge they're more than open and more engaged and switched on and focused and willing to learn that knowledge as opposed to you just kind of starting the lesson saying right this is how you do this this is how you do this this is how you do this now go forward and and, and learn a bit more D does that make sense and i wonder what what's your kind of response to that do you still get the same purpose if you tell them stuff straight straight away essentially but i think very often you don't know what you don't know yes so it's a bit like um donald rumsfeld's unknown unknowns <laughs> and the second thing that's wrong with that is that it presumes that kids are as interested in the subject as you are so i i, I and i think that kids may want to be um proficient in a particular uh, area but there's nothing more demoralizing than just than not knowing and flailing around in the in the dark. One of the things when we when we spoke to Dylan, uh, it's something that he's said to me actually on a couple of occasions is that one of the major problems with feedback is that a lot of it is unwanted because students don't they have they don't feel they can get better and so they don't they don't they're not really interested in finding out more. Yes. And I think if you model that to a student and you, you create a, a culture where the baseline expectation is a, a, an unswerving dedication to getting cleverer at this particular domain in this, this area, uh, then you're setting a very, very high standard. But it has to be set by the... Uh, teacher, and this, and the last thing I'll say about this is, um, you know, and this is this is well discussed uh, in um, a paper by um, a, a famous paper by Kirshner, Sweller, and Clark about mm. why minimally guided instruction doesn't work, because without the, the 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 without knowing a lot about a particular domain, you're kind of flailing around looking for for answers, and that doesn't feel good. And I remember the feeling of you know to go back to that question about being in maths and just constantly not feeling good because i was in a lesson with a teacher go right 
here's what you're going to do get into groups and and kind of discover it and talk about it and the you know me and my mates were just we we kind of gave up very very um early on um if the students are at a high level if they've if they've got a lot of knowledge and they know what they're doing then i think that they're in a good place to work more independently if they if they're novices then they're not and most students are novices yes got it F- fantastic carl and how about if i chuck it over to to you then robin can can you take us through a lesson that that didn't go according to plan yeah, and um, very similar to Carl, actually. And it does go back to early in my teaching career, but it, it was one that stung at the time. But uh, similar sort of thing, trying to get kids to discover things for themselves. And this is going to be fantastic. And it's going to be all about them and not about me. And so I'd set up this sort of task where they had to go to the library. They had to find out information. It was about something they didn't know anything about. So I thought it was really exciting for them. You know, they can they can do this themselves. They have a bit of independent learning. Uh, and there were a bunch of kids who were like, you know, 12, 13 years old. Uh, and it was fairly shambolic and it annoyed everybody else in the library who's trying to do some actual work. And, you know, I mean, I was aware at the time that it wasn't going to plan. And the thing is, once you turn it loose in the library, you can't really kind of, you know, shout and get them all back together and tell them off for, for not doing it properly, uh, because, you know, people are trying to work quietly. Uh, so it was just a bit of a disaster start to finish. But I mean, to, to rub the salt into the wounds, uh, one of the deputy heads had been in the library at the time and came to see me the next day to ask what was I playing at, really. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it, I, I didn't think, you know, I, I did this because I thought this is the kind of thing I was supposed to do. Um, and I realized a few things from it. But uh, you know, one was actually about scaffolding a task properly. Um, and uh, a good scaffold needs a solid base of knowledge. So that was one of the key things. So quite similar to Carl in that respect, um, but also to you know make sure that you, if you plan a lesson, you know, try and have some time to reflect on the plan before you enact the plan. Um, so if you sort of plan a lesson on the way in, if you realise that there's a flaw in that plan, you know, it's, it's too late. You know, you're already into the lesson. So by the time I realised what had gone wrong with it, you know, it was too late to fix it. So I do think that you know you need to try and have a, an idea for a lesson well enough in advance that actually when you sit down and, and really structure it properly that you've had something from time and you can maybe adapt plan a little bit. So in my experience, I think lessons that have been thoughtfully planned over a little bit more time uh, don't really go wrong. I mean, even if the kids turn up and they're not on form that day or one kid disrupts a lesson or whatever, you can still get an awful lot done. But if you're planning on the hoof or not planning at all, then things will go wrong and you won't see it coming. Uh, one of the bits, sorry, finish one of the bits of advice I was given when I was a chef is that it, you know, the difference between a chef and a cook is that a chef knows what to do when things go wrong. And I think that's also true in the teaching profession. You know you're a really good teacher when you can fix things when they go wrong on the spot because you've just got that experience. And I just felt at that time I haven't got the experience yet, so I need to learn more about the craft of teaching. That, that's fascinating. That, And it's, it's interesting um, that you, you both talk about it was this kind of desire for independence or this emphasis on discovery which which kind of caused the lesson to go wrong and i wonder robin can i ask you because i've had this same dilemma myself where did where did the kind of belief that that was the way that lessons should be taught come from for you yeah it was very much the the culture i think when i started teaching in the early 2000s that you know this was the the way you should teach whether you shouldn't be standing and talking in front of the class all the time that it should all be group work and they should be finding things out for themselves and um you know so i, I tried to buy into that and, and wasn't a very good teacher whenever i did it but actually it took me quite a long time to have the confidence to to really challenge that simply because i thought it's going wrong because i'm not doing it right yes and 
think only because I then really started reading in depth later on in my career that it was so lovely to hear other people say that, well, no, actually, there's, there's some serious questions of methodology here. And that teachers knowing things and sharing things and being passionate about the subject in front is, is all right. Uh, and that was very liberating. And, and it comes across quite strongly, I think, in sections of the book. You know, Doug Lamov talked really well about that, where he says, I, I don't know why a teacher talk was, you know, gained such a bad reputation. How did that happen? Um, so, you know, that for me, it makes sense of maybe the first five or six, maybe even seven years of my teaching career, thinking that's why I was, was at best an average teacher in that time. Of trying things that weren't working, but I thought I had to persevere with it because I assumed that one day I would make it work. Um, it didn't. <laughs> Got it. F- fantastic. Well, you, like the professional you are, Robin, there, you've teed us up perfectly to, to talk about the book now. Cause, um, it's. And I don't say this to all my guests. Like I've, I've got a copy of the, of the book here. It's literally one of the best things I've I've ever read in my life. Um, it, I got a, I was lucky enough to get an early copy when I was on holiday with my wife over the summer, and like that was the end of the holiday for me. I just couldn't stop reading about it and bugging her, telling her all the things that I, I all the insights I was getting. It's it's a wonderful book. So I just wonder if we we go to you first, Carl. Just can can you give us a bit of background? Why did you want to write this book? Well, basically, um, I was uh, Alex Sharrett, who is the uh, who's in charge of John Cat, had been sort of emailing me saying, "Would would you want to write a book?" And I kind of didn't have an idea. And one of the things when I'm talking about research, I had this phrase, which was the question the teachers should ask when they read research is, "What does this look like in the classroom?" So I kind of had this idea, um, a kind of a loose idea for a book. And the other thing was that Robin and I were working, we were um, putting together EdFest um, for for the last two years. And we were meeting all these people, uh, fascinating people, you know, the great and the good. And we were uh, having these amazing conversations with people, people like Dylan and Daisy and, and others. And so... I kind of had this idea, well, what would it be like if we asked them um, explicitly, what does this look like in the classroom? So I sort of went to Robin and said, I've got this idea, uh, because Robin was working in, was in charge of professional learning at uh, Wellington, and it, it just, he's, Robin's very good at kind of structure and how to put things together, and I'm terrible at that, and organisation, and he then uh, kind of had this idea about, well, because we had working with all these partner schools that we could we could gather a lot of questions. We they could actually emanate from the classroom. Yes. And we could, in a sense, be uh, like a pair of brokers, brokering research <laughs> um, for teachers. Uh, so I said to Robin, look, I've got you know got this sort of idea of doing something. What do you think? And then he came in with some ideas about how it might be structured and how we might put it together. And then um, we met with, with, with Alex and said, look, you know, this is, this is what we think. And at the time then we had, we, we didn't know um, if we could uh, get all these people um, to, to, to do it. And uh, yeah, luckily they, they all said yes. 
I mean, if I just just come to you, Robin, I mean, it, it's it's a ridiculous list of people that you, you've got here. I mean, I was lucky enough to, to interview Doug Lemov last week, and he described himself as kind of a squad player in this team of 18. But it's just an absolute all-star A-list. So how do you go about getting those kind of people together to, to contribute to the book? I mean, it was, well, I don't think it'd be possible without us working on Edfest, but we did think, right, if we, we wanted to do this, we identified the chapters we wanted to cover. And then we thought, right, well, let's start with some people that we know will be up for it straight away because we know them well and they're you know good friends of Edfest and they, they just do it for fun. And then when we put them on board, we can then say to other people, that these are the people we've got on board, would you want to be in the team kind of thing? <laughs> so people like uh, Martin Robinson and Daisy Christodoulou, Tom Bennett, you know, straight away were like, yeah, absolutely, we'll do it. But then it was easier to go to other people and say, yeah, yeah we'd like to. And I, I don't know at what stage in the process we approached people like Doug and uh, Dylan William, um, but when they came on board, that made everything so easy. And I'm going to someone like Paul Kirshner, who we didn't actually know. Uh, you know, we just please, please say he does it. And when we told him what the lineup was, he was far back. Like, yeah, absolutely. Um, as the people at Pedro, um, which was great. And I think, um, I think the only person that we really didn't have any direct connection of any sort with at all was uh, Maggie Snowling. But again, even though she's president of St John's Oxford, you know, she was willing to give her time to us. So it just it generated momentum. There was a, a nice sort of snowball effect about it. And I think that it. It works because of the concept, I suppose. It's, you know, as much as, as Carol and I wanted to write a book, we thought, actually, what can we really add you know, that hasn't already been said? I mean, in the field research, yes, of course, it's probably going to be something, but it would be great if we could bring in some, some really big names. Um, so that's where I think it, it does work quite well, because you've got a bit of to and fro, and you, almost everybody knows everybody who's in the book as well. So we are sort of standing the shoulders of giants and doing this. Um, and, you know, it, we were very happy with how it came off because we weren't entirely sure it was going to work. Um, There's a few moments along the way where we thought, have we made the right decision on this? So it changed shape quite a bit in the space of about the six months we worked on it. Um, but when we finally got it and looked at it, we thought, actually, yeah, this, this is what we wanted to achieve. It's a little bit... Sorry. Oh, sorry, no, go you go, Carl. It's a little bit like Bob Geldof and Midjor putting together <laughs> Do They Know It's Christmas. <laughs> But bigger, perhaps, I'm I'm thinking. (laughs) Where did, um, if I ask you then, Carl, where did the idea for getting kind of two people per chapter and the kind of almost conversational tone of it? Because for me, that's that's one of the strengths of the book. It's very easy to kind of dip in and almost feel like it's you, the reader, asking the question. And then I I love the way you're getting two different opinions. And often they're they're complementary, but sometimes they'll say different things. And I think that's really powerful. How soon into the process did, did that idea come about? Well, I think my sort of view in education research is that a lot of it is not written uh, or it's written without teachers in mind and it's yes. written in a language that they don't understand. And what I wanted to have was a sort of a, a lingua franca, a language that, you know, and we, you know, Robin and I, we were uh, one of the, the sort of guiding lights we had when we writing this book was what would what do we wish we had known? in our first year of teaching. And we thought yes. if, if, what, if we could get all of that into, into one book, what would, what would we wish we had learned? And a lot of it was, you know, for me personally, it was that a lot of these people were, were very good friends of mine. So I was kind of in a circle of very, very lucky to be in a circle of people, uh, you know, with like Tom and David and Martin and others that, 
I was regularly sort of in the, down the pub with these people and we were having these conversations and I was thinking, God, it'd be great to capture this. Yes. The amazing, the, the, you know, the way we're talking about this paper and what it means in the classroom, it would be great to, to sort of capture that in uh, some form. So the, the um, and then we kind of, Robin had this idea about we should get uh, questions from teachers as well. And then what we did was we, we put questions out to teachers at Wellington, but then also across about another 25 schools, which are a part of our teacher school alliance. And we just had this massive range of questions and we sat down and aggregated them. And then we thought about well, what, what are the 10 areas that these go across? And um, so then we had uh, a, a, a huge amount of questions that we had to sort of filter through. And a lot of the questions were, they just wouldn't have worked because um, they were, you know, some of the questions were teachers who, who, who were, they had a knowledge of things like assessment for learning. They had, they had a, a, some really good questions about, say, marking or feedback or, or, or those kinds of things. And they're the ones that worked particularly well. And I think a lot of the questions were questions when we read them, we kind of got excited because we thought yeah actually that's i really wondered that myself and you know yes. we can't wait to see what you know people like dylan william or um or or um or, or others you know or doug would, would would say to this um and then we just interviewed that we we did it on uh, skype and we we kind of um went to robin's office over the summer and had this unbelievable period of time where we were interviewing all these people and just learning an awful lot and, and then we another thing we did was we wrote an introduction to each chapter where we were um we'd give a, a sort of a pricey or an overview uh, so we were reading a lot of stuff ourselves and i think we both learned a huge amount just over the whole process of, of putting the book together and can I ask you, Robin, because I uh, I'm in a bit of a position myself where over, over the course of these last two years, especially doing this podcast and speaking to the likes of Dylan and the, the Bjorks and, and Doug Lemov and Daisy and so on, that it's really opened my eyes um, in in a similar way to this this world of research that's out there and really evaluating my own practice. But what what struck me is like a lot of the papers that are referenced and you, you, you mentioned the, the minimal guidance one and the ones on cognitive load theory, like they've been around for a while, um, you know, 10, 20, even 30 years, some of them. And yet the sense I'm getting is it's only really in the last mm. kind of probably three, four, or even kind of two years that it's really reaching a kind of prominence and, it, and it's getting through into the mainstream and people are t like everyday teachers like ourselves are, are talking about it. So why, why has there been such a surge in interest in this research, do you reckon, um, of late? I think there's, there's two big reasons. Uh, one is Twitter, and the second, I'd give a lot of credit to ResearchEd as a, as a movement, actually. I think it's right to describe it as a movement. Um, we know that research has been out there, so it's, it hasn't made it into schools, uh, it hasn't made it into classrooms. But I think Twitter has been a, a game changer for teaching because it means it's so much easier to share ideas to cross the profession. And when it gets you know, things right, it really does get things right. I mean, obviously it can go a little bit wrong too. But I think I remember going to a first ever research head conference and, uh, and actually hearing Daisy speaking and just thinking, wow, there really is a, a, a massive new world out there that would be very exciting to explore. I, I need to get involved in this. And so I was already starting to pick up a little bit of my own reading, but 
Oh, I don't know what the first element in this process was, but you know, books were starting to come out. You know, Doug had written things that were fantastic and, and selling very well, and uh, you know, people, Pedro, you know, all, all those. I mean, almost everyone in the book has written something fantastic in their own right in the last you know, sort of five to ten years. That you know, again generated this sort of movement that I think teachers coming together at research head conferences once they became regional things and international things as well, it just spread the conversation. Um, so you know, everyone started talking about it and realised at that point that you know, it was kind of like the end of the Wizard of Oz. You know, you sort of realise actually what is genuinely happening uh, in education and, and all the fads and all the nonsense and all the policies that you've been told this is what we have to do. They're just blown out of the water. I think it's fantastic. I think it's, it's been so empowering for teachers and it's shifted the balance as well of where educational policy comes from. Um, but, you know, it, it has had such a profound effect that more and more people are turning to research. And what we want to do a little bit with the book as well is just give them a steer because not all research is going to be useful. Um, and, you know, it's not going to tell you exactly what you need to do. It's, it's a best bet. But we thought we're still looking at a, a situation where it's not as easy as it should be for teachers to engage with it. So how can we provide that, you know, that, that brokerage really? to get teachers and sort of entry level into research. So that's where um, I think the book did try to make it conversational. It did try to make it easy to read. We didn't try to make it too overly academic. And a couple of reviews have said that, you know, you've had more references and more extra reading and so on. And that wasn't really the, the aim of the book to start with. When we wrote something else again, maybe we'll go down that route. But at this moment in time, I think we're quite happy that um, it was a little bit of a, a reflection of a moment in time. I think there's been so much movement forward in education and research that, our book was only possible because there's enough people interested in it now so that's good news got it fantastic well let's let's dig into some of the the specifics of the book then and again i'll, I'll return to you carl i wonder if you could um pick out and again interpret this however you want whether it's a, co a specific contribution an answer a theme or whatever it is but just something that, that resonated with you perhaps something you learnt yourself that you feels really important that, that our listeners should know well i think just on that um on that last point, I think that the, the the reason why I think teachers are interested in research is that there's a general movement towards teachers taking ownership of their own profession. And I think teachers have been uh, dictated to uh, often by people who are either have never been a teacher themselves or have no experience teaching. And, and the, the other thing is that a lot of teachers, they've never even been exposed to different arguments. So I, I was sort of five years into my teaching before I'd read um, things like Daisy or uh, listened to uh, Dylan talk about uh, uh, feedback. And then secondly, a lot of research is, is completely misinterpreted. In the book, we, we make the point that a lot, it's like you get this Chinese whisper effect where you have academics and people doing good work in research, and then by the time it gets filtered into the classroom, it's a pale imitation of its uh, original form. So I was quite struck by about, I think it was about three, four years ago, Dylan William was having a discussion with uh, David, um, uh, David Didow, and it was at Edfest, and they were talking about assessment for learning. And I remember thinking, this is a really fascinating discussion because I'd never seen a kind of leading academic in conversation with someone who's really just a teacher and um, so when we interviewed um, 
Dylan, one, you know, I mean, Dylan has got, he, he has this way of talking about research where he can uh, attenuate meaning in an incredible way, and he can mm. kind of hone down and, and, and focus, zoom in on things that are really important, and he's got this brilliant way of explaining things. And in the chapter on, I think the, the chapter on assessment of feedback was, I think, the, for me, I think the, probably the most significant because it questioned the idea that, that that marking and feedback are the same thing. It questions a lot of the practice that's going on in schools right now. It questions a lot of the the, the it questions a lot of policies in schools that are frankly driving teachers out of the profession. Triple marking, um, the, the notion that teachers are marking work, um, and it's more about their work than students' work. It's more about teachers. Um, having a body of work that they've done rather than what the te- what students are doing. And Dylan said, uh, one of the quotes he said was that uh, feedback should be about improving the student and not the work. And I, I thought that was a really kind of very simple point, but an extremely profound one. And um, I think that's probably... Uh, Again, to go back to if, if it'd be something that I wish I had known, you know, ten years ago when I started uh, teaching, where I was spending huge amounts of time marking books uh, and just seeing very little improvement. And can I ask Carl? Because I, I agree, like I, I'm biased towards formative assessment. I'm absolutely obsessed with it, and I absolutely love the, the Dylan and Daisy chapter. But just just taking that point. What, knowing that kind of advice what what would it make you do differently then if you if you were if it was you five years ago and it's a sunday afternoon and you've got this big pile of books to mark and you know now dylan's piece of advice how would you approach that marking differently well um dylan said i think later on he said that he wished he'd called it responsive teaching yes and that uh it's the, the, the emphasis should be on how does a teacher and particularly the student respond to a piece of work. So I think, you know, uh, what I was doing a lot of the time was simply highlighting what was deficient about a piece of work, um, as, as, as he noted. And, and that kind of thing is more <coughs> of a post-mortem than a medical so what you what you end up then with is students knowing what they can't do as opposed as opposed to knowing what they can do. Yes. I think what I would um, probably do the other thing I would do is um, thinking about um, again the work of um, particularly uh, Sweller thinking about cognitive load is it's very difficult for students to be excellent if they don't know what it looks like. And so I was often talking about um, assessment criteria and saying, look, you, you know, here's the assessment criteria. Mark your own piece of work. So you're again, you're telling kids how to do something in a very ambiguous, abstract way. So I would probably use exemplars, particularly in English, uh, and take it, uh, get students to do a piece of written work, then take some exemplars of that and then maybe spend half an hour really looking at the anatomy of what an outstanding piece of writing looks like and not even thinking about summative grades uh, but just like getting them to have a very solid kind of mental representation 
of what an outstanding piece of writing looks like so they can internalize that. And I would, again, I think the, the formative assessment is probably, you know, there's a, there's been a, there's been a lot of atrocities committed in the name of formative assessment. And Dylan is, you know, he, he, he's often said this, he said this in public that he's been appalled by what has been done in the name of formative assessment. Um, so I think that kind of shift away from simply trying to kind of, improve a piece of work as opposed to improving the student is critical fascinating now that's brilliant that carl and how about yourself robin was was the one particular contribution answer or theme that that really hit home for you mm. uh, in terms of just liking them i, I like the uh, answers where there isn't agreement because again yes. the point wasn't to say this is how you should do it so here's the right way it's actually was, was to ask questions rather than answer them i suppose uh, so there are moments where, for example, Tom and Jill disagree about mobile phones in schools. I think uh, critical thinking is another issue that uh, gets different responses from, I think, David and Pedro. So I like those moments because I, I'd like to think that it would make readers really think, actually, about what their response to the question would be. So those are the moments I, I, when we were going through it. and thought, oh, that's quite interesting. <laughs> you know, they, they were, they were, it was the ones where we just thought, yeah, this is going to work out quite well. Um, and actually, what I've also noticed in, uh, you know, once we've done the book, there's such a focus on getting it all right. I reread it again as a reader, which was a, I noticed just how often in different chapters some of the same things crop up, like the guard of difficulties or retrieval practice and space learning. Uh, and you know, things that work that we know work and are being talked about by different people in different contexts. Um, so I think that adds strength to, to those as particular techniques that teachers can use. And I think finally on this one, I do like the last chapter in independent learning just because it's the one question in the book that gets answered by lots of people rather than just two answers to it. So you get the full range on a topic that is potentially very nebulous and difficult to define. So reading through that, again, there's some great moments, there's some great definitions in it. You, know, you could lift out probably a dozen different definitions that the contributors give. Uh, and it makes you think very deeply about what it is. And because it's such a paradoxical thing, you know, independent learning in the classroom doesn't look like independent learning. And um, that's where you get some really fantastic, uh, you know, different responses from the author. So I think I quite like that one when I read it back. Got it. Fantastic. And let's go back to you then, Carl. And it may be a difficult one, this, but it, but if someone someone's listening and they're looking for an immediate impact, something that, say, they're even they're driving to work, listening to this podcast or they're listening to it the night before, is there anything that they could do the next time they teach that, that you've learned from the book that, that would have an immediate impact? Um, well, sticking with, uh, I think, Dylan, one of the um, quotes that he said, which had a huge influence on me, was that feedback should be more work for the recipient than the donor. And we kind of asked him very very pointedly how do you implement that and he gave an example in maths which was uh, rather than taking 15 answers as, as correct and putting a cross beside five others you would say to the student five of these are wrong you find them you fix them and I think yes. that 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 kind of thing is and again you'll probably find that a lot of teachers are instinctively doing this um, or have done it for years um, but it's it's extremely powerful, and he also has um, what he calls uh, four quarters marking. And he was making the claim that teachers should mark in detail 
25% of what um, a student does. And that's not to say you mark a quarter of an essay. It's sort of over, uh, say, a half term. Um, 25% should be uh, peer assessment. Uh, 25% should be... Um, Hang on a second here. I'm just. I'm, I'm going to get it in front of me here because I, I really don't want to misquote him. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so, 25% should be uh, self-assessment uh, with teachers monitoring the quality. Teachers should probably skim another 25% in order to get a sense of what they should focus on and what's deficient and what they need to plan for next lesson. And then peer assessment should be the other 25%. And I think that's a a, um, a very contentious claim to make it sits very uneasy with a lot of teachers and a lot of um uh, marking policies um but i think it's a very kind of powerful way of thinking about feedback and also thinking about workload um and what teachers sh should actually be doing yeah that that's fascinating that Carl. and i wonder is that is that something that you as it influenced what you're doing in your department or, or within your school has it actually made you sit back and, and kind of reflect on some of your practices particularly in, in terms of marking and feedback i think the, the, the thing with marking feedback is that it, it's a lot of we're in a culture that sort of audits itself in terms of uh what what's visible or what you can see and yes. marking is something that's easily visible whereas learning something is you can really only infer from yes. what's happening whether a student is is learning or not so it it sits it, people are very uneasy about the idea of say um that you may kind of get students to do a piece of writing and then the purpose of that is to is for the teacher to respond to what's happening, yes. and for the teacher to think about uh, right, what are they not understanding? What do I need to change? What do I need to go over? What concepts do I need to re-explain? I'm just going to look at this and see uh, what have they got right, what have they got wrong. It's it's probably very uneasy with parents because they come from a culture where uh, where teachers a measure of how hard a teacher is working is how often um, pupils' work is marked. So. Um, I think it's it's for me personally. It's made me uh, think a great deal about uh, explaining to students the the purpose of what they're doing and, and what they're writing, and to to largely get them to take ownership, more ownership over the process. And if you're marking books every two weeks and you put a grade on it and you put very vague statements, three or four vague statements, the the improvement is is, is often very very slow and they will make the same mistakes two weeks later um whereas i think if you uh maybe think about exemplar work or worked examples it, there's something inherently powerful about that where they suddenly feel ah okay i've got a i've got a sense now about how i can move towards this and again assessment objectives and assessment criteria I think it's written in a language that just does not speak to students at all. It's particularly yes. in English. It's very vague. It's very ambiguous. Um, so it's it's a sort of a careful. I, I, you know, there's very few schools that are 
that have marketing policies where they uh, would would use that. But I get the sense in the same way that we've, we've seen a shift away from if you had said 10 years ago, five years ago, that, that, that we were going to do away with graded lesson observations. Yes. You, yes. No one would have believed that. And I get the sense that where we're going currently with marking is in, in five, 10 years time, we will look back at our profession and we will think, what on earth were we thinking? <laughs> what were we thinking? Uh, no wonder, you know, we've got this uh, re- recruitment crisis when, when, when teachers are, are leaving the, repress- the profession in droves and other teachers are looking at the amount of work where teachers are every Sunday, their front room, they've got 30, 40 books out in front of them. Uh, so I think it'll, it'll, it, we're on the cusp of a wave, uh, but I think it'll take time. But I get the sense that that, that area of our profession will be the one that changes most drastically. Well, let, let's hope so. Fantastic. And how about yourself, Robin? Is, is there anything that, that you read there that you think a teacher listening could put that immediately into their toolbox and use it the next time they see their kids? Yeah, I, I knew Carl was going to pinch my answer, but it's been the same as <laughs> marking. Uh, I think from the point of view of something that is simple for teachers to understand and implement and saves them a massive amount of time, four courses marking is spectacular. I mean, I was uh, for a very long time absolutely wedded to marking as much detail as I, as I possibly could under the illusion that more feedback in written form, the better, and you know, this is how people are going to get better. Uh, and it was quite a big thing for me to divorce myself from that. And actually looking at the full course of marking model as well, I think it's, it's terrific. In fact, Dylan's got Milton about when he says any teacher who's marking every bit of work their students produce in immense detail is a bad teacher. <laughs> yes. It's not that they're just they're morally a bad person. It's that they must be spending so much time on that that they're not spending time preparing lessons. Yes. And if that feedback is not actually having impact, then what was the teacher effort achieving at all, which is a, a depressing thought. I, I thought like that for a long time. So when you're looking at it and thinking, right, well, if I'm only going to mark in detail a quarter of the time, then what am I going to do with the other three quarters that's, that's going to be really useful? So I'm really enjoying whole class feedback at the moment and finding that is a good way of, of getting students to spend more time on the feedback than you know I've, I've spent on actually delivering it. And it does allow you to turn it into that investigative work that, that Dylan recommends. So it's just strategies like that, I think, are brilliant time savers because just think about it practically. I, I know that if I was marking an A-level essay, for example, it would probably take me eight to ten minutes to mark it. And if I've got 15 pupils in the class, then I'm looking at two and a half, three hours worth of work. And if I dish that back at the start of a lesson, they will probably look at it for a grand total of three to five minutes. Yes. Uh, and so if you add, add that up, then... You know, even if collectively as a class, they spend, what, 45 minutes to an hour probably collectively reading something to take me the better part of three hours <laughs> and not really having much of an impact. Whereas I love whole class feedback because I can reduce the time I would read a, a long essay and, and think a common set of issues we can identify as a group and work on together. And that might reduce it to more like five minutes time for me to read these essays. And that suddenly becomes an hour and a quarter. But in the lesson, that might take us a good, 20 minutes to get through uh, and suddenly it is loading the time towards the students really investigating their own work and not having everything laid on a plate for them which is fantastic and definitely has a, a positive benefit i think i was to pick anything else um, i did like the answers on how to help with spelling that comes up in, in the chapter with diane and alex quickly 
um, on, on reading, and they, they come up with some terrific stuff there. Uh, and actually, uh, one thing that I, I will try and do more of is using the etymology of a word to get it across, because every word has its own history, and I suppose if, if students have personal engagement with, with language, uh, and you know, rather than treating it as sort of abstract code, you know, sort of lumps of meat, I suppose, uh, then they will learn to spell much more effectively. And that chapter, I think, is, is brilliant because it's just kind of blow by blow, paragraph by paragraph. They're really practical, specific things that teachers can do um, to, to get over that idea that pupils are always making the same mistake again and again and again. And why aren't pupils reading enough? Um, there's so much good material in there that can change practice. And for all teachers, you know, I love that line that if you're a teacher in English, you're a teacher of English. So we all have a whole school responsibility to deal with literacy. Fantastic. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Robin, just just in case Carl nicks your answer to the next one. I'm going to come to, come to you first on this. So um, is there anything in the book that you think is a strategy a teacher could build in over the long term, perhaps in the next kind of couple of months or even, even the next kind of few years of their career? Yeah, I think, I mean, probably on the same theme, I think once you start assessing pupil work in a different way, the longer term thing is to actually think more creatively about assessment you put in front of them. Uh, we go, Carl said earlier about the atrocities committed in the name of formative assessment. I still think an awful lot of, of what we think is formative is really summative assessment in disguise. Um, so, you know, I'm guilty of that and, and up until quite recently. So if I'm teaching history, I you know, write an essay, then I will teach the first topic. And after like a, you know, maybe three weeks or something into the new year, I will get them to write an entire essay on it. But that is, you know, essentially some of the work I'm using a past paper question from an exam that they might be sitting for a couple of years. So um, in that sense, it would be better to think about, right, everyone, let's write an introduction to this essay. Let's get together and actually think about um, assessing each other's work and then coming up with what would be an exemplar introduction. Um, and looking at different ways of doing it. So breaking the essay down into constituent parts and teaching them one at a time and maybe being brave enough to, to not get them to write a full essay for six months so they understand the mechanics of it part by part. Um, so try and be a bit more creative in the assessment you go with because once you realise that you can assess work in many different ways and you don't have to do it in a you know an old-fashioned, you know, I'm marked in the degree kind of a way, then it actually frees you up to assess things in a very different way. One of the, the best forms that I've found is, is actually just having a, a viva after a reading week. You know, if, you, uh, if you structure a task really well to allow pupils to read in depth and then you quiz them on it directly in a, a five to ten minute interview, you know, that, that's actually very challenging for them. It's a desirable difficulty, but it's a great way of doing it. And again, it allows pupils that might struggle with SEN issues and the same type of assessment again and again is difficult for them. They won't fall in love with the subject. So give them an opportunity to shine in a different way. It's really interesting you say that, Robin. So this is something I've, I've kind of spoken a, a fair bit about recently and something I, I've been thinking a lot is, is changing assessments. And I really started thinking about this when I read Daisy's second book, The, the Making Good Progress, and also sp spoke to her on this podcast. And she made the point that it's very easy to give kids ex past exam questions or pa uh, full full papers. And I'm, I'm talking maths here, but I'm assuming it's the same in English. And, and the kind of logic is that 
this is what they're studying towards. So this is the best way to get them ready for that is to, to give them a full experience of what it is. But I think Daisy says in the book that exam papers are almost more like project work in the sense that kid, there's a lot of problem solving elements. Kids are having to discover things, work the way around things. And they're not designed to be learning materials. Kids aren't ready at that stage of the development, especially if it's a past GCSE question. You're giving it to a kid in year nine or, or even year eight in, in, in some cases. So I, I think you're right. And I, I, I've kind of made the decision this year that no year 11 is seeing a, a full pass paper until February. And this kind of goes completely against everything I've ever done before, because it's been as soon as they arrive in, in year 11, as soon as they sit down first lesson in September, it's right. Here's your weekly pass paper schedule, one pass paper a week, every single week, and just go through the motions un until you get to GCSEs. And I just I just I just don't think it works. I'm, I'm the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced that not only should practice doesn't always have to look like the kind of final performance, but practice shouldn't look like the final performance practice and the kind of learning is, is a very specific thing. It's a very focused thing. And, and if you're doing it with kind of past exam papers and, and questions, it's not necessarily the best way to get kids learning. And is that something that kind of resonates with you from, from what you've read and, and your understanding? Uh, absolutely, because I think any time you use a, a past paper, it's a high stakes form of assessment. And if you want kids to be stressed and fall out of love with your subject, then bash them over the head with that. Again. <laughs> so if you actually have that time, you know, wait till halfway through the year before you go with the kind of full uh, bitch high stakes assessment, then there is a chance they might actually just start really enjoying the subject um, and get to progress through lots of little steps before they're ready to take on something really quite substantial. And I, I like uh, Daisy's response to that question in the book where um, somebody asks her, you know, when, uh, when should um, we, we start to use past papers and run up to exams? And he said, well, who's the question? I mean, the run up to the exams, you leave them alone until then. And uh, yes. so, you know, especially, I, I like the fact that levels you know, sort of shifted back to being um, linear and, and that does allow you, I think, in year 12 to really learn in depth and, and stretch pupils for longer. I mean, I'm working in Scotland where uh, people are sitting exams at 16, 17, and if they stay on 18, then it's, you know, it's kind of treadmill. And, and actually, we're working in a system where there's an absolute sprint to get through the content so that you've got it out of the way, you know, by kind of like January, February, so that you can gear up for exams in May. And that happens three years in a row. And that's really sad. You know, we actually should spend a little bit more time really getting them to to immerse themselves in a subject rather than sprinting through the things they need to learn so we can assess 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 you know i think we've got the balance wrong there in that respect so uh, i like the approach you've got i'm trying to do more of it myself and i recommend other teachers do the same okay fantastic yeah it's, it's a scary one but uh, yeah i think it's worth it um how about you carl is there anything from the book that you think teachers could build in over the longer term i think the the second last chapter were the, the all the chapters are kind of specific topics and we get experts and they answer them um and the the sort of last chapter is um you know sort of we get everyone out on the stage and we all sing we are the world together and the, the, <laughs> the question the question that we ask them is about independent learning because it's 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 one of those things i think that a lot of schools talk about it and a lot of schools have it as a kind of a, um, a kind of an aspiration for students, but there's very little agreement or sense of, of what it actually means and how to do it. And when you, you know, in education research, there's, there's, there's often very little consensus on anything. But we found that when we interviewed everyone, the, the, a general pattern emerged. And it's this idea that 
independent learning is probably a, a desired out means or it's a desired end but it's not a very good means to that end yeah. it's not a very good way and it goes back to your point about and also i think this is uh, in um you know something that anders ericsson talks about a lot with deliberate practice that the the the, the steps towards the final outcome looks very different than the final outcome yes so the in in that chapter um that kind of guiding principle that the sort of guiding philosophy um that what kind of independence and you know all kids end up ultimately working independently um in either an exam hall um, or whatever it is and uh, but to get them into that place to get them truly to be independent uh you you you, you know you need to do very different things you need to break down into its constituent parts and then practice them and get proficient at them and then as you say, maybe kind of some weeks out from the exam, you bring out the exam papers, the past papers, and then they can do them. The other thing I think that I think was really that really struck me was when we spoke to um, Doug Lamov, and for him, uh, writing is, I think w- the phrase he used was it's the coin of the realm, and it was it's something that um, I'd never really considered before um, that writing is the thing where students are truly independent and to get them to write in a, in a specific way, in a very structured way, uh, is, is one of the most powerful things that we can do. That line, by the way, was, um, uh, we decided by the time we'd interviewed Doug that um, we got Oliver Cavalli on, on board to do the illustrations and he talked about, okay, make sure that you try and pull out really good quotations. I'm going to use them at the start of chapters. So whenever people were saying things that were like, quotation, Carla kind of looking at each other's interviews and going, like, <laughs> when, when Doug said that, we were always like high fives on the other end of the, you know, the Skype. <laughs> Perfect, we're having that. <laughs> <laughs> that that's fantastic. Um, well, if I, I go back to you now, Robin, just just to kick off, kick us off with some reflections to, to bring us to the end of the interview. And I wonder if we could start with just, just wondering, what, what would you consider the most important piece of educational research you've ever seen is? Yeah, I think for me personally, it would be the work that David Webster has done with the Teacher Development Trust and pointing out that uh, you know, teachers essentially learn an awful lot about their class in the first two years, but after that, they plateau and don't really get any better. And that was a terrifying thought when I first heard it. I heard David say that at um, you know, Fest, and you'll come across that. I think it's on his head as well. And so I started looking a lot more closely at it, and it just coincided with the time when I was put in charge of professional learning at Wellington, and we, we, we'd already had some talks with Dave, my, my predecessor, a guy called Mick Amy, who was very interested in his work, so that, that's why I called to see David in the first place. And so we looked at it and we thought, you know, actually everything he's saying here makes sense. You know, we had a one-size-fits-all model of CPD where everyone had to come along and hear the same talk, and we had those week there four nightly. It was like Wednesday, 5 p.m., and it didn't really matter how good or bad the speakers were. It made no difference to our practice. <laughs> we went away and did anything different on the back of that. And also, we were spending a fortune teachers going on courses that were the same sort of nonsense. You know, speakers uh, in, in a hotel basement somewhere with an arm with a flip chart and post-it notes and ball suites and, and you know, people <laughs> coming back. Might have been interested, but they didn't actually do anything practically very different. So what we, we then did was just completely change our model and our approach. And, and now I'm a very big fan of reading as a form of professional development. 
the Community for Development Trust have emphasised that you want to take on a, a serious skill set, then you know, 30, 40 hours stretch over the course of the years is going to make a difference, not you know, sort of five hours in one day. And I'd almost equate it to sort of learning to drive a car. You know, if you want to learn how to drive a car, you wouldn't go and do a one-day course then sit your test. And the same thing with uh, people learning a GCSE, they, they wouldn't you know, try and crack it in a weekend. So you have to build up skills incrementally over a longer period of time with serious moments of reflection in between. So that research changed the way I thought about teacher development and how you other staff could actually work together over a longer period of time um, to acquire serious skills that actually benefit people learning rather than just doing ad hoc tick hoc things that make it look like you're professionally developing but actually you're not. Got it. That's fantastic, that, Robin. And how about yourself, Carl? What would you say the most important piece of research you've ever seen is? Uh, I think probably the, the Barak Rosenschein has done uh, on principles of instruction. Um, it, it, I think what's interesting about that is he's triangulated three different areas. And the, the, the thing that's important about that research that he did was that they're all uh, there's no conflict at all between the um, instructional suggestions that come out of those three sources. So one of them is uh, research in cognitive science, um, but then he's looked very closely at the, 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 the sort of the practices of master teachers in the classroom. And then he looked, I think, at um, cognitive supports uh, that, 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 that help students and Ultimately, what came out of that then was 10 principles um, of instruction. And they're, you know, there's stuff that would be familiar to a lot of teachers. But again, I think a lot of effective education research is uh, kind of relatively simple. So the things like beginning each lesson with, it, with a review of previous learning, um, present material in, in smaller steps, uh, ask a lot of questions, provide models, um, scaffold what um, students are doing um, and it, 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 you know if, if, if there was one, again one piece of research that I would say you know people interested in research for the first time should read it would be that and there's also a very good uh, version of what he's done in um, the American Educator um, but I think the, the more research that you read um, the more confused you get, and it should it, yes. it, it it should be that way. If you anyone who ever says all the research says X usually hasn't read any research, <laughs> because the you know and um, anybody I kind of know who who I kind of really respect in education research, they'll often say the same thing, which is that we just don't know, and what we have really in education research is is a series of best bets. We have a yeah. series of things that can point us in a particular direction. And, and there are some things that are more promising than others. There are some claims that we could make about how students learn, how they retain information, how they transfer knowledge. There's, there's some, we're starting to get some interesting findings, but, but so much of it is us flailing around in the dark. And something that might work in one context won't work in another context. And so, uh, you know, it's it's um, I, I think I was I was definitely certain about far more certain about teaching when I knew nothing. Than, yeah, absolutely. Than when I uh, sort of read a lot. So I think, um, 
when we talk about you know significant research or, or I think we've always got to bring quite a bit of humility to the table um, and but you know one of the things that education research ca- is, can do I think we're, we're in a particular phase now where we can certainly reject a lot of things we might not be able to say for certain well this is the definitive way to teach but there are a number of things that that, that are that we can reject and uh, you know famously things like learning styles brain gym uh, a lot of things that were de rigueur in the classroom 10 years ago so we, there's a lot of important research that can um, can can reject and save time and stop us wasting time and then the rest of it is a sort of a, a series of arrows that point us towards a kind of a, um, an indefined uh, future got it for superb and and how about back to you robin with this and it's a, a tricky question this one but is there any research that particularly surprised you when you came across it yeah um i think in particular Rob Coe's work about lesson observation and just how bad teachers are at it. Uh, <laughs> yes. I think I always had a lingering suspicion that, that maybe we weren't looking at, at the right things when we observe lessons. And I had a bit of a obsession for a while about lesson observation forms and looking at them. I didn't like them. I thought, are we ticking boxes, you know, as if there's a sort of magic formula that we should be trying to identify? I was like paid by numbers and irritating <laughs> when I read that it, it was fantastic in many ways but it, it was still surprising and I love that um, strong et al study where I think it was 2011 um, and having got a group of teachers to watch videos and identify using sort of offset criteria who's outstanding and who's inadequate you know they got the judgments wrong 63% of the time and that's amazing yeah. you've got head teachers in the mix as well and you're thinking come on there must be clear water between outstanding and inadequate if you just Judge kind of A B A B, you get it right fifty percent of the time. So they're three percent of the time, and uh, it, it shows you that we what we really think is learning in a classroom is not. And, and what's confusing about it, of course, is that some of the things we want to be present in the classroom, like we do want it to be orderly and, and well run, but that doesn't mean to say that people are necessarily necessarily learning. They might just be having a sort of intellectual feet up for an hour or long your lesson is because it's dead easy they're doing things they already know and that's why they're nice and quiet because they want an easy time of it so you've got to look much harder to identify real learning in a classroom we can't see it it's a visible thing um but that's what the, what the one bit of research i always try and get across to people is that if you think you can observe a lesson you're just because we know how to, to plan a lesson and execute a lesson it doesn't mean to say that we can observe a lesson and, and genuinely see learning but as a profession we think we can so that, that's what i go for that, and can I ask you as well, Robin, just on that, so I'm, I'm obsessed with uh, with lesson observations and I've got Jane Jones, who's the chief uh, Ofsted inspector for maths, coming on the show um, next month and I'm going to absolutely grill her on um, lesson observations. I can't wait. But one question I just wanted, wanted to ask you, because you, you mentioned, I think, earlier on in the interview that you've observed quite a few um, maths lessons over, over the last few years. Um, as a non-specialist, would do you... That, what, what's your view of observing lessons outside of your kind of subject expertise? Yeah, I love it. I think it's one of the best things you can do. I think if you are uh, only observing within your subject, then you're so much more likely to fall to you know, sort of bias where you, you like what you see and you see what you like. So um, if you don't see other subjects, it really does make you think an awful lot more about different techniques and strategies and what works. It means that you also, I think, concentrate much more on what pupils are doing because you're not necessarily following along with the teacher because you already know it. You know, so I think if you observe a lesson in your own subjects, it's a bit like watching a film that you've already seen. 
But if you <laughs> yes. a Mandarin lesson or a maths lesson as a history teacher, wow, it's really different. Um, and I, I think the most, Carl and I talked about this a bit as well, is that we, we spend a lot of time thinking about what teachers are doing to enhance pupil learning, but we should now be thinking a bit more about what pupils do. And that's what I find very valuable about going into lessons. I love having a quick flip through the work that the students have been doing. Um, I, I like having a look at the conversations they have out of earshot with the teacher if they're actually trying to you know, discuss an issue that's popped up and, and how they're going to solve that. Um, so you try and look for those other things. And uh, you know, I think the only proxy we can really use is if we can spot when a student is thinking really hard about something. You know, if they're being, you know, that idea of going back to Bjork and desirable difficulties. If we can see them you know, cognitively wrestling with something, we know that there's something good going on there. Um, if they're all sitting quietly flying through the work, then they know how to do it. So even learning or they're just performing. Um, so that's what I would say when you're going to see lessons that are outside of your subject area, you're more likely to focus on those kind of things. That's interesting. Thank you. And how about back to you, Carl? Is, it, is there any piece of research that was particularly surprising for you? I think... Um... Graham Nuttall's work, um, the, the the notion that learning requires motivation, but but motivation doesn't necessarily lead to learning. Um, his work, um, he wrote a book published in I think about two thousand seven called "The Hidden Lives of Learners," um, where they essentially mic'd up students uh, in a lesson and tracked what they were saying and, and really tried to focus on. Um, the kind of the the interior lives of 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 learners, um, and one of the things that really struck with me was his research showed that students can be really really busy and really involved, but with material that they already know, and that uh, I think is, it was, he said that each student knows about forty to fifty percent of what the teacher is teaching. And so this idea that uh, engagement leads to learning is is often a problematic claim. Often they can, they, you know, just because they're busy, it doesn't mean they're actually learning anything. Um, and so I think that idea about the, the, the causal arrow of motivation, something that Nick Rose talks about in the book quite well, mm. uh, we, we've often got that the wrong way around, that we think we need to motivate students first and then the learning happens when actually uh, uh, it's the other way around. Achievement is the thing that often leads to motivation. So it comes back to this idea about having a very um, kind of scaffolded, uh, clear guidance for students. And if you can really kind of lead them into a place where they can achieve, even if, even if they just say in English, you can kind of show them very explicitly how to write an introduction, give them the type of vocabulary they need, the structure, the type of sentences, the phrasing that they need, they then practice it. You then feedback and tell them that this is absolutely outstanding. That can then motivate them as opposed to trying to do it the other way around. The other thing I think was um, both surprising and interesting to me was, as Robin just mentioned, it was Robert Bjork's work on learning and performance. Um, so in a similar vein, uh, students can often... Uh, give the impression of learning something when really they're just responding to cues and they're performing. And um, I remember reading that a number of years ago and uh, it's just having a, a profound effect on me. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, that, that paper and, and Bjork's work, uh, absolute game changer for me. Yeah, I c- completely agree with that, Carl. Um, and just just flicking back to you, uh, Robin, just just for b- books that you'd recommend teachers to read. Obviously, I mean, everyone after this is going to be rushing out to snap up your your and yours and Carl's book. But if there was a second book that they should uh, read, what what would it be? What would you recommend? It's tough. There are so many good ones. I mean, Carl's already mentioned um, the Nuttall book and then Lives of Learners. I think it's great. Um, Benedict Carey, How We Learn, very accessible. So teachers have never read a book on education. I think that's a pretty good starting point. Uh, I really like John Thompson as a writer. Um, again, somebody I saw for the first time I went to a research head conference and was amazed afterwards to find that he was ahead because um, he just seemed like somebody who had a full teaching load and always liked just being a teacher and, and nothing else in terms of leadership. So that was great. Um, I really enjoyed Clever Lands. I thought that, that was great as well, thinking about international education, uh, Lucy Crean's book. And then there's the other you know, kind of the big thing. So Dan Williams' Five Don't Students Like School is, is obviously a great book. Um, George Gilchrist has a book coming out pretty soon called Professional Learning with Impact. So if anyone's interested in, in professional learning, that would be a good read too. Uh, yeah, the list goes on. I'll, I'll leave some for Carl to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, go on, Carl. Anything to add into the mix? I think the 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 probably the best book I've read is um is Dan Williams uh Why Why Don't Students Like School? Yes. It's one of the books that again I think Dan is um probably the best talk I think I've ever seen on education was Dan William. We did a a researcher in New York a couple of years ago, and he gave a talk about how to persuade people with evidence, and he essentially made the claim that evidence is not enough, uh, that you need to you need to uh, understand other people's motivation for believing what they believe, and it's not just enough to hammer them over the head with evidence and research. And in that book. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's just an extremely powerful and, and, you know, he's a brilliant writer as well. So there's lines like, um, uh, uh, I think it's, is it, um, memory is the residue. What's, what's that? What's that line again? He has memories. Regis- he has mem- mem- memories, the residue of thought. Of thought. Yeah. That, that, I think that one line, if you, yes. if, if once you, kind of really understand that at a deep level and that you know so say critical thinking is it's intrinsically linked with what has been thought about and and this idea that um you know we we talk a lot about critical thinking and stuff like that but you know asking the question what are they going to think with and focusing on what they're thinking about but also his whole field um of cognitive psychology is something that i'd never encountered until probably only five years ago and it's it just been such a fascinating field for me to read and i think that book um is extremely powerful uh, graham nuttall's the hidden lies of learners is um hugely uh, both books the one on seven myths and um the one on assessment um make it stick is um uh, an outstanding book um, Martin Robinson's Trivium is just sort of one of the most important books on, on, on education and, and the broader debate about education. Um, but I think for, for teachers, probably, 
you know, reading blogs and subscribing to maybe, you know, five or ten blogs uh, is, you know, an incredibly empowering thing to do. Absolutely. And uh, you, once again, you've, you've teed us up there, Carl, for, for my last question, which I'll ask you in a second about your uh, your top three that you'd recommend people check out. But just just before then, I just want to ask you my, my final question. And it's it's interesting this because you, you mentioned, I think it was you, Carl, earlier on in the interview that one of your overriding aims for writing the book was to answer the question, what do you wish you'd known when you first started teaching that you know now? So let, let me throw that question to both of you. Is there one one thing or two things that you wish you'd known when you first started teaching that after all the reading, the research, all the conversations you've had with people that you know now? So let me go to Robin first with that one. Yeah, this is a great question. Uh, I think there's, there's so many things that I, I wish I'd known at the start that it's quite difficult to narrow it down to just one. But I do think that if I had taken the time to read one good book every term when I started teaching, I would have been a much stronger teacher um, in a short space of time. Um, I think that's the, the best form of professional development. So it's something that I've only really been doing for the last maybe six years, possibly. Um, so in other words, I spent the first sort of 10 years of my career not really reading um, and instead once I started actually reading blogs reading books getting engaged with that I think I became a, a much better teacher as a consequence so that would be my advice to myself going back to you know sort of whenever I started teaching read something really good about you know teaching and professionally uh, or professionally research every term I think you can fit in one book a term um, without too much difficulty that's great advice and how about yourself Carl um, probably that there's no such thing as developing a general skill, uh, that things are very much uh, domain specific. Um, and again, Dan Williams has written uh, really, really well about that, particularly thinking about critical thinking. Um, Anders Ericsson has written about this in, in, in Peak. I think one of the things that um, had a big influence on me was that if I remember, he, he, he talks about you don't train your memory. You, you train your memory for strings of digits or for collections of words or for people's faces. And the idea of, of um, you know, brain training and the kind of uh, general skills are hugely problematic. So domain specific knowledge. And, and, you know, we see that again with areas like growth mindset. You know, a huge amount of studies now about growth mindset are failing to replicate. And I think one of the reasons for that is that we tend to think about it as a general skill, when in reality, students may have a growth mindset, say, about maths, but they don't have it in English. And the idea that you can kind of begin an assembly and think, right, we're going to boost, you know, students' mindset, and then they will take that into every domain that they encounter um, is, uh, you know, it's not just problematic, but it's, there's a, a converging uh, area of research that is showing that that it's 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 quite a, uh, it's largely a waste of time. So the idea of of uh, general skills uh, is is uh, I think a huge problem. That's brilliant, fantastic. And now just over to you two, really. So if I, I start with Robin, um, and I'll link to these um, in the show notes, what three websites, blog posts, or whatever you want, would you recommend our listeners check out? Well, so I've got a feeling we might say the same thing, so we'll take it turn about. But uh, The Learning Scientist would be my first one up. I always really enjoy reading that, and uh, yeah, terrific advice for teachers. So that would be my number one. Uh, I'll let Carl do the second one. 
Oh, um, um, there's a guy called uh, Ben Newmark, who is a sort of a, a, a newer blogger. Uh, I think he he a lot of stuff I've read from him recently. I think is uh, really really excellent. Very very um, very very kind of thoughtful way of, of thinking about things. Um, yeah, so Ben Ben Newmark's blog. I don't know what it's called. But that's you, fine. We'll we'll, yeah. we'll we'll look to I'll lock that up and link to it. That that's no problem at all. And uh, Robin, do you have another? Yeah, so we're going to get in trouble if we don't say Tom Sherrington and Teacher Head. Uh. We'll have to about this if we don't. Uh, I'm genuinely very very good. I mean, Tom's knowledge of education is just phenomenal. And uh, you know, we did our book launch uh, jointly with him, and it was just the way of sort of Carl and I standing there doing next to Tom how much experience he has. Uh, you know, he's got as much teaching experience as the two of them put together. <laughs> uh, I've, I've, I've been reading his, his book it just come out so I was reading it and the journey down and just thinking wow this is just terrific and it's just a distillation of, of all of his experience and his blogging into one resource so I would add that Fantastic and any others Carl? Michael Fordham um, writes a blog I think it's called Cleo Cetra uh, but if you if you go yeah M- Michael Fordham uh, he is really good on curriculum um and uh, yeah it's just one of those blogs every time i read it i just think uh it just makes me think so yeah michael's blog is good superb and maybe one more each if you've got it robin uh yeah i like um i actually give a shout out to a friend of mine who actually hasn't added to his website in a, a couple of years but Reading back over his blogs recently, it just struck out how good it is. But Mark Healy's stuff is very good. Which I think he's down at GIJ, he'll do something like that. But yeah, um, he's a deputy head and a psychology teacher and, and really big in quality of psychology. So um, I would recommend that. Fantastic. And, and last one from you, Carl. Um, I'll just fire off a few, actually. I think um, <laughs> Doug Lamarve's field notes are outstanding. I think he's. he's uh, uh, as really really good um martin robinson's blog on trivium um and then when becky allen writes a, a, a blog for data lab it's always uh you know really really uh provoking so i'd say yeah Be- becky those three Fantastic. They're superb. Well, that, that's brought us to the end of the interview. And, and all that's left for me to say is, is thank you for two reasons. Um, firstly, just for, for giving up your time. I know you, you're both very, very busy. So um, thank you for that, firstly. But secondly, th- thank you for putting the um, the book together. It's, it, I, as I think you've said, it's, it's what the teaching profession was kind of crying out for at this stage. There's, a, there's an appetite for this research. But as teachers were kind of time poor for a start, it's hard to know where to begin looking for research. I've certainly found that. And then I remember when I first kind of read my first research article, like just trying to distill what the flipping heck it was about and trying to understand the language and so on. I was like, oh, my God. And then you start reading one thing and it leads you to two or three others. And you're just trying to get your head around and form a coherent argument. And and it's just the book is just a wonderful starting point. It's, it's, It's the world's leading experts. It's fantastic that you've got two people speaking about one particular subject. And as you say, you sometimes get the contrasting views. And it's just it's just inspiring and it, it just makes you reflect on your own practice. It 
gives you kind of ammunition to use in the best possible way when you're kind of confronted against something that just doesn't feel right and it's yeah it's just it's just a must for for every teacher so thank you for for all the effort in in putting that together and it's it's just been a real pleasure speaking to you both tonight well thank you thank craig you. No, it's brilliant. And uh, can we just apologise to your wife for ruining her holiday? Um, yeah, or bad. <laughs> now, I'll tell you what, I, I was the only person around the pool reading it, but hopefully this, this time next year, fingers crossed, that, that'll change. But yeah, it was an absolutely <laughs> wonderful. It was a wonderful book. Right. Thanks very much, Chris. Thanks, Craig. There you have it. There was my interview with Carl Hendrick and Robin McPherson, the authors of What Does This Look Like in the Classroom? I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. And I've been thinking, what the flipping heck am I going to talk about in my takeaway? Because genuinely, when I, when I was reading this book, and it was uh, in cars, round the swimming pool, I was just, I was in awe. There was people around the pool, they were reading flipping Dan Brown's latest, and they were getting all excited. I was getting excited about some of the absolute bits of gold that Dylan, Daisy, Doug, and all the other contributors were dropping throughout the book. So I've got tons of takeaways from it, and, and many of them I've, I've spoken about with, with previous podcast guests, and I've already incorporate them into my teaching but there's two that I wanted to kind of hone in on here and the first is uh, with regard to marking feedback and workload because it's such a big such a big issue it's driving teachers out of the profession it's the thing that takes up the most time and I think a lot of the ways I've been doing it in the past just haven't been effective at all Um, and it was fascinating to hear Carl saying that he thinks that workload and with specific regard to marking will be the next big shift in education that we'll look back in 10, 20 years and think what the flipping heck were we doing. So how have I changed my marking since reading the book and, and kind of following it up and reading a lot of Dylan's work? Well, I do kind of delayed and reduced feedback. And this is one of uh, Professor Robert Bjork and Elizabeth Bjork, former podcast guests, uh, one of their desirable difficulties. And it sounds kind of counterintuitive. You think that the more feedback that you give kids and the quicker you give feedback, surely the better it's going to be for their learning. But there's kind of two problems with that. The first is it takes flipping ages. And I love that, that, uh, that Carl referenced that Dylan said, that if you're marking every piece of work and giving feedback on every piece of work, you're not a good teacher because you simply don't have time to think about lessons, questions, explanations, examples, all the other things that are so important to learning. So point one uh, with the problem with a load of feedback and quick feedback is you don't have time. But point two is... you. You don't give kids opportunity to think a lot of the time. And Dylan Williams says as well, the only good feedback is that which makes students think. And I was spending hours on Sundays writing reams of feedback. And the irony was that I kind of discovered almost the better the feedback, the more comprehensive the feedback, the more scaffolded the feedback, the less the kids had to think. And I was giving kids work back during dirt time or mad time, whatever you want to call it. And they were just like reading all my copious notes, glancing over it. They knew exactly what they had to do. So they just kind of filled in the blanks, tried the follow-up question. Fine, oh, I've done it, sir. Finished in two minutes. And it was taking me flipping 20 minutes a book sometimes to do it. So no, something had to change. Um, so what I do now is I delay and reduce feedback. And I follow the advice of Dylan and some others. 
So the first time I mark a book, I just put ticks and crosses. That's all um, on work, ticks and crosses. And sometimes I'll take this further and I'll do what Dylan suggests and make feedback into detective work by saying, and Carl mentioned this and it's in the book as well, that um, if a child's made five mistakes, um, instead of giving them 15 out of 20 or whatever it is on, on their score, um, just say to them, you have made five mistakes, can you try and find these mistakes? But either way, I just put ticks and crosses or list the number of mistakes, but no feedback whatsoever. And then I give the book back to the chat, back to the students um, in dirt time or mad time or whatever. Because I reckon there's three reasons a child's going to get a question wrong. Reason one is that they genuinely don't understand it. And for that child, feedback's really important. Reason two, they've made a careless slip. Now for that child, I don't think detailed feedback is that important. If you just indicate that they've got it wrong or suggest that they hunt down and try and find mistakes, then it's probably gonna be more beneficial to their learning if you don't give feedback and the child just has to figure out where the mistake came um, themselves. And the third reason kids get things wrong is because they can't be asked a lot of the time. They haven't put thought into it or they've just copied someone or they've miscopied it or they've just banged down any answer because they know that they'll get in trouble if they don't do homework, but they won't get in trouble if they just get homework wrong. And for those students, again, I'm not convinced detailed feedback is the, is the way forward because we don't know whether they don't understand it or whether they just can't be bothered. So ticks and crosses, I think, kind of satisfy those latter two groups. And even the child who doesn't understand it, maybe if their attention is brought to the, the question that they've got wrong and they've got time to think about it, discuss it with a peer and so on, they may resolve their own misconception. So I like to give absolutely zero feedback the first time I give books. I give books back, give kids time to reattempt it. And then when I take the books back in, that's when I'll then have a look at their second attempts. And that's when maybe I'll start to give some feedback or I'll do what Robin spoke about and whole class feedback and worked examples and all that kind of thing. But I want to give students opportunity to think, think again and reflect. And I want to do it in a way that doesn't take me flipping ages. So this process of delaying and reducing feedback and, and only giving the kind of focused feedback the second time round is just saving me hours. And I think it's more effective for kids learning. So that's one thing. And the second thing is exams. Um, exam and specifically exam papers. I'm sticking with this. No past papers until February of year 11. At one point I said April. April might be pushing it a bit, but I'm, I'm definitely sticking with February. And there's a couple of reasons for this. Um, the first is the, first, the most important. I'm not convinced kids learn from doing exam questions and exact, well, specifically full exam papers. And I go back to Daisy's point that exam papers are sometimes more like project work than, than kind of assessments because exams, and I'm, let's think specifically about GCSEs here, GCSEs have been written to test the full range of abilities, the full type of, the full range of question types and problem types, but at the end of the course, at the end of year 11. And giving them kids early on when they're not fully ready for them because perhaps they haven't finished the, the, the course or more specifically, they've not, they're not fluent and they've not automated key processes. Well, it risks them trying to kind of solve problems on the go. And I'm convinced, this is one thing I'm absolutely convinced by from a reading on cognitive load theory, I am convinced that unless students have automated a lot, a lot of knowledge or are have that knowledge actually in long-term memory. They don't learn from solving problems because trying to trying to answer like a five mark um, 
in context exam question on a, on a math GCSE. One of those, it's around about question 20, something like that. It's a flipping nightmare. There's a, a diagram of a, a cone bombing around, but there's percentages, there's numbers, there's ratio. You know the ones. You're not entirely sure exactly what it's about. If kids are having to try and figure out the knowledge as they're doing the problem. So think, oh, what was it? That's a ratio, right? Wait a minute, how do I then share in a ratio? Right, that's asking me to find a percent. Wait a minute, how do I have to try and find a percent? If they're so bogged down in the specifics of the problem, then they've no cognitive capacity left. They've no space in working memory left to attend to the more global features of the problem. How does the ratio and percentage link together? What do I have to do next? So they're muddling the way and they're struggling the way through the problem. And yet potentially they've not learned anything from it because they've not been able to connect the dots because they've been so bogged down in the basic skills. So I'm not convinced kids necessarily learn things from doing exam papers when they're not ready. And I tend to find, that I don't know if this resonates with, with any listeners, but I tend to find that, that if I had, say, a second set in year year um, 11 and I'd be banging them out papers every week, sure, they'd be getting 60 70%, but they'd always be getting 60 70%. And whenever we then go through in class the kind of 30% that they got wrong, they were like nodding along, yeah, sir, I get this, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then the next time they got the paper, they, they weren't developing, they weren't pushing on, and I'm convinced it's because the knowledge wasn't there. So how do we get that knowledge there? Now, I talk about this in the book. It's one of my big things I'm absolutely obsessed with. But I think two, two ways, really. The first is goal-free problems, and this is uh, an insight from cognitive load theory, stripping out the actual endpoint and asking students essentially to work out as much information as they can um, about a problem. And again, I talk about this in the book, and I also have been banging on about this at conferences for, for the last kind of year or so. It, I'm obsessed with this. And also purposeful practice. I think it's the best thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, I spoke about this in my interview with Colin Foster. Um, he calls it mathematical etudes. I still can't say that word. I call it purposeful practice, but for me, it's the ultimate. It's a way of getting kids fluent um, in the absolute key skills, but also developing these problem solving um, attributes and spotting connections and so on. I'm convinced that is the way forward for all students. And then sure enough, February comes around. Let's then start dishing out the past papers because then it's more about exam technique then it's more about the final piece to the puzzle but I don't think you can start banging in that piece until all the other pieces and specifically knowledge are in place that analogy didn't really work about the jigsaw but hopefully you know what I'm what I'm going on about there so anyway, there were my two key takeaways. I mentioned, I'm just going to do a little plug here, I mentioned both of those in the book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths and a lot more besides. But anyway, all that's left for me to do is once again thank Carl and Robin. They were great guests, and honestly, their book, I'm not just saying this, it is flipping brilliant. It's, it's an absolute banker. It's right up there for me with uh, with Willingham's um, Why Don't Students Like School, which which was a game changer. I've spoke about this on the podcast many a time, but this for me is right up there. It's a great book, especially if, you, if it's the first time you're dipping your toes into, into the world of education research, um, or... And if, like me, you've dipped your toes in and you want to know more, it's it's absolutely fantastic. So thanks, Robin and Carl, for writing it and for giving up their time on the show. And also, time to thank podcastthemes.com for the jazzy music that you've heard throughout the episode. And also you, my loyal listeners, for keeping listening, keeping tuning in and keeping uh, spreading the word. If you've got a chance to give us a review on iTunes, you know I'd always be uh, eternally grateful for it. Um, and I shall return with more guests. The lineup, I mean, it's, it's, it's not quite there uh, with the lineup that Robin and Carl assembled. But I tell you what, it's not far off with the kind of guests that'll be coming on the show soon. So keep tuning in. Thanks so much for listening. You 
take care of yourselves and bye for now.